Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This week on the quarter deck in our hero highlights, we're going to take a look at the Medal of Honor citation of Major General Merritt Austin Edson of Rutland, Vermont, who was born on 25 April of 1897. This week in our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, no greater friend, no worst enemy, we're going to go ahead and continue in reading and talking about the developments in the fire support planning and what the division is planning on doing to ensure that all those targets are going to be able to get taken care of and our division is going to be successful in the campaign that is going to be happening here in the near future in our book. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's, it's time for the gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, 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 get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle dragging, beer drinking, hard charging devil dogs. You're listening to the quarter deck. I am your host, Miguel the Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The quarter deck. It's Thursday, and you guys know what it is. It's time for our new episode of the quarter deck. I am Miguel the Gunny Signs, and I hope that you guys are like me, and your beer is already chilling in the fridge because you guys know what? Mine is ready to go, and I am ready to start my weekend. So this week, I celebrated my 46th birthday. You guys believe that? It's big old 46. And I can't even do what a lot of people do on freaking TikTok nowadays. I can't even reverse my numbers because you guys know if I take freaking 46 and I reverse that, that makes me freaking 64 years old. No offense to all my listeners that are up there in the 60s. You know, like I tell you guys all the time, I don't like to say that we're getting old. We're just getting a little bit more seasoned in life. So I don't want to be extra seasoned just yet. I'm going to be just a little extra crispy. I don't want to be super, super crispy in life just yet. And with that, my wife she's very, very creative. She's very creative when it comes to anything dealing with arts and crafts or anything dealing with any kind of stuff like that. A couple of years back, she took a course at Michael's, I believe. They offer courses on learning how to do things, but she took the courses, the first two courses on how to make cakes. So she knows how to make cakes from scratch and the fondant and the little decorations, all those things. So she's very creative with that stuff. For my birthday on Tuesday, what she did was she went and bought a cheesecake, one of those big cheesecakes that they sell at Sam's Club. And she also bought some cheesecake cupcakes that they sell in a little canister of eight that come along with it. So she took the cheesecake and she surrounded it with the cheesecake cupcakes. (laughs) Very, very creative. And she knows that I love cheesecake, so she... You know, didn't even tell me she went and got that stuff because she kept asking me, like, so what do you want to do for your birthday? And honestly, you know, I have no idea. I don't know what I wanted to do. My birthday, you know, I look at it sometimes as it's just another day. It's another typical day. And on my birthday, you know, not only do I share my birthday with my dog, Gunny, because he turned two years old as well. So we were celebrating his birthday with a cake as well. But also on the 20th is also the day that one of my Marines was actually hit with an IED. You know, he was just injured. He, he didn't lose his life or anything, but that's something that we share in common uh, that day. So it's, it is my birthday, but it's also his birthday of life that day where, you know, ultimately he did end up losing one of his legs, but he's still here with us. So sometimes it's kind of difficult to just kind of remember, you know, my birthday and it kind of makes it seem like you know I don't want to be selfish you know what I mean I don't want to be selfish in the fact that I'm celebrating here I am celebrating my birthday and stuff and I have the memories in my head of the same things that occurred on that same day on my birthday now honestly you know is that a way that I should think you know yes and no I think is the right answer to that because that's something that occurred to me to him in on that day every single year and that day is always going to be there it's always going to be stuck there in our lives for everything that we do so it's very very important you know that leads into 
dealing with a bunch of the mental health stuff that we deal with every single day. There's so many veterans out there, so many service members that are out there, you know, that deployed to Iraq, to Afghanistan. Now the Marine Corps is kind of turning into more into a peacetime Marine Corps. And during that time, from 2003 on until all the service members were taken out of Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, all the Marines knew was a combat environment. That was the kind of environment. It was always a go, go, go environment, being on the alert constantly all the time. And that's something that not easily you can just turn off right away. You know, and a lot of people have that misunderstanding, I guess you could say it that way, that they wonder why do military service members act a certain way when they're here, when they know that there's nobody here that's going to hurt him and stuff, but they don't simply, they just don't understand. You know, in my mind, I just don't have a feeling that they get quite the understanding on what emotions, feelings, and things go on in the life of a service member that has been down there in a combat environment. Now, when I think of a combat environment, you know, not necessarily do you have to be getting shot at every single day because there are Marines that deployed that went to a combat zone. Now, they did not directly engage in any kind of combat. You know, does that make them any kind of less of a service member or less of a Marine? No, in my mind, no, it does not. You know, it's just simply that they did not, I won't say they didn't have the opportunity, but their units weren't there and they weren't directly in the actual fight of getting shot at every single day. And that is something that, you know, with my unit, when I was down there with Bravo battery 110 over there in Kajaki in Afghanistan in Fobs or Boogie, you know, we dealt with that kind of stuff every single day. So we dealt with everything from IEDs to RPGs to mortar fires on a daily basis. And to me that became normal. You know, that was a normal issue and normal thing that I'm used to. You know, up until this day, I still carry a concealed weapon with me every single day. And, you know, that doesn't affect me. Yes, I do suffer from PTSD and I have uh, certain things that I have to deal with on a daily basis. But having that weapon with me whenever I go places just makes me feel complete. You know, you guys that have gone to these deployments in a combat environment can kind of understand and you can kind of relate. It's difficult to talk to other individuals that have not been in that kind of environment with you because it just seems like they just don't really understand. They don't understand your feelings and your emotions to them. It's just like, okay, yeah, whatever. You're not there anymore. You're now you're here. So who cares? God damn, I care. I care because the way that we lived our life every single day, it's important to us as military service members And, you know, that's kind of why my mentality is the way that it is on my birthday. And it sucks. It really, really sucks because there's a day that, you know, I should be happy to share with my family, with friends, and all those things that I should be enjoying. But sometimes it's difficult to remember and to understand that, yes, I'm here. You know, I'm not dealing with that kind of situations before, but it's just hard because that, that event those things that occurred are always going to be in my mind, in my brain, and I just can't get them out of there. Man, I wish I could just reach in there, pull them out, set them aside for other days. But unfortunately, that's just not going to happen, you know, and that's something that I got to deal with for the rest of my life. And sometimes, you know, I do feel sorry for my wife, for my son, because they're here with me every single day. They deal with the days where I'm grouchy as I wake up and I just have a temper out of nowhere. You know, I'm grouchy. I get upset with things right away. Little things annoy me and it's not fair to them. And that's something that throughout the years is something that me as a combat veteran have to deal with every single day. And I still deal with it every day. You know, and in the last past couple of episodes, I've talked a lot about the VA and some of the things and the services that are available through them and all those things. And, you know, in my opinion, you know, this is my own personal opinion. I've had no negative issues with the VA for any appointments or anything that I need to get done or set up in the future. If I need some kind of an appointment with my primary care provider that I have assigned to me, simply a phone call, contact them, and I get an appointment usually within about a week or two max that they'll get me an appointment. 
Now, if I need to see a specialist or anything like that, they always ask me, hey, do you want to do it at the actual VA hospital or do you want to do with a civilian doctor closer to your area that we can assign to you to be able to go see? Now, sometimes those those take a little longer. They can take up to a month and stuff to be able to see here locally, but they, again, that'll be my choice. Who do I want to see? Do I want to see an actual VA doctor at a VA facility? Now, unfortunately, down here in Arizona, where I'm at, in Yuma, we only have a a CBOC, a community-based outpatient clinic. That's all that we have here. So it, it, there's nothing dealing with any kind of specialist or anything like that. It's just simply an, you know, a little outpatient clinic where you can go there, get your hearing test, your eyesight, uh, basic physicals every single year, blood work, and things like that. Everything else, if you get any kind of specialist or anything that you want to see, you have to drive all the way out there to Tucson. Now, from here to Tucson, it's about a three-and-a-half-hour drive to get all the way out there. So it, it's a, a long ways. You know, and yes, do I get reimbursed for travel? Yes. I get gas mileage and everything reimbursed back to me. So, you know, in the long run, I make a little extra more than what I actually spend on gas. So, it, you know, it's not bad. So I got to drive, you know, well, whatever. I don't care. I'll drive out there, handle my appointments and all that stuff, and then be able to come home. You know, it's not a big deal. But I do understand also that there are some veterans out there that can't do that. They can't drive all the way out there to wherever they got to go. The one good thing that I do like is that the fact that the VA resources that are in the local community, like the CBOC that we have here, they offer shuttle services to be able to take you from here all the way to the actual hospital for the VA to wherever you're assigned to, to take you out to your appointments and actually bring you back. And that is something that I'm not sure if a lot of veterans are aware of, that they do have the capabilities to get transportations for those things that they have that are service-connected. If you have service-connected conditions and you're going to appointments because of those conditions, then they'll take you. You know, So we got to take advantage of all those things. Us as veterans, we have to take advantage of them to make sure that we get to our appointments and all that. So let's take a break. I got to get a drink. <laughs> you know, it is Thursday and we got to get everything in place ready for us to go. So a salute to all of you out there and enjoying your Thursday. But yeah, but it's important. It's important for us to make sure that we're aware of all the things that are available for us as a veteran for us to take advantage of, you know, and that's something that's taken me a while to actually figure out exactly what's out there. And I'm not saying only saying that because, you know, as you guys know, I did work for the VA as a contractor, as a VA benefits instructor aboard here at the air station in Yuma, teaching all the separations classes, the TAP classes for the Marines as they're getting out and teaching them about all the VA benefits and everything that's available for them once they get out. Now, yeah, good. I, I got all the information. I taught all those classes for over seven years. So I'm aware of all the things that are available out there. And that is why I always make myself available for any veteran that may be having any kind of questions dealing with anything with their disability claim or just simply getting information about the VA or anything in their community that they can actually receive because of the service-connected disabilities that they have. Because if you're aware of it or not, remember that every state also has different benefits that a service-connected disabled veteran can qualify for benefits in their state because of their rating. Now, every state is different. Some states require you to have a 100% rating in order for you to qualify for any of these additional benefits. You know, and a lot of those include, you know, don't forget property taxes. Your vehicle registrations fees can be lowered, can be cheaper than, you know, what you pay every single year. And my gosh, you know, nowadays, a lot of these friggin' uh, states for you to register your vehicle to get your tax for your, you know, depending on how new your vehicle is, it can be anywhere from 30 to freaking $500 to pay for a single year of having your tags in order for you to drive your vehicle. So it's expensive. And, you know, if you're a service-connected veteran with service-connected conditions and you meet the requirements for your individual state, you can apply for that benefit to be able to see if you qualify for it. And it's going to allow you to, you know, save money. And that's the ultimate thing that we want to do. We want to make sure that we're able to save money because now that a lot of individuals, a lot of veterans are getting out of the service or you're just simply a veteran already and you're out, you're not making the same amount of money that you were making on active duty. 
your base pay is completely, completely different now. So you're not making that money. And you got to remember that, you know, and for me, man, it was a freaking culture shock. Once I retired and after my terminal leave ended and I received my last active duty paycheck, the next one for my retirement pay, good gosh, I couldn't believe, you know, how much of a change that was going to be of what I was going to be making. So I'm like, damn, now I got to get a job. And I can only imagine how that is for, you know, the service members that get out after four years, eight years, you know, you don't retire and don't receive a retirement check once you get out of the service. Dang, it must be freaking hard. It's difficult. It's a culture shock because it's hard to be able to sustain the same quality of life that you were having on active duty because, you know, like I told my Marines every single day, every formation is like a family reunion. Every paycheck is like you winning the lottery every 15 days. And that changed as soon as you received your DD-214 and you got out of the service. So, yeah, so, you know, so I can, I can kind of relate to all these younger service members and veterans that are getting out. Or, you know, you as a veteran, you've been dealing with this for a number of years. And sometimes it's difficult because I've known Marines that are getting out that are now veterans that have no plan when they get out of the service. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my goodness, you need to have a plan to a plan to a plan to make sure that something is going to be put into place for you to be able to succeed now that you're getting out of the service. You know, taking advantage of your education benefit, your GI Bill, your post 9-11 education benefit. Use it. Take advantage of it. Go to school. A lot of employers, a lot of everything out there now require you to have some kind of a degree in order for you to get hired for a job. If you get out and don't have a degree, you're not going to be competitive out there in the civilian world. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And, you know, believe it or not, you know, it's... It's a mystery to me because I've met service members that are getting out that say, whatever, I am never using that benefit. I don't want it. I don't care about it. I'm not going to use it. And it's just money that's getting tossed away. It's getting thrown away that you've earned for your education to ensure that you get a better understanding and are better suited for the time that you get out of the service to make yourself more competitive out there in the civilian world. You know, so it's hard. It's difficult. So, you know, remember that. Remember, take advantage of all those things. I don't want to get on track and sidetracked again and start talking about a lot more of the VA stuff. But we always got to remember that stuff. You know, remember it. It's there for us to take advantage of it and everything and all that. So let me tell you guys a little bit of something. You know, since I retired out of service and everything, you know, a lot of veterans deal with the kind of issues. Mental health is a big thing. You know, so for me, you know, if it wasn't for my wife, I probably would have never even gone to the doctor to deal with my PTSD issues because, you know, from the nightmares to anxiety to depression, all those things just built up and added up even worse once I actually got out of the service because, you know, I'm on my own now. I'm not, I don't have other Marines that I can actually talk to on a daily basis and help me deal with some of the issues that we're going through because they can relate because they were there in that same kind of situation. So now that kind of puts you alone. You're by yourself and you're dealing with these things on your own. So it's, it's, it is hard. Because even to this day, it's very difficult and hard for me to actually sit down with my wife and tell her about some of the things that occurred down there when we were on deployment, some of the things that we did. I mean, to her, in her mind, she thought that we were down there staying in like a hotel, you know, just going out, doing things and helping people. And that was her mentality and the picture of me being deployed out there. Now, have I really painted a picture to her to let her know exactly what we did? No. But I did show her pictures of where we were living, where we were staying, things like that. And then she was like, oh, my God, I thought you were staying somewhere nice and everything. And, you know, so she kind of got a better picture and a better understanding. But that's as far as I went. And, you know, I, and I just don't feel comfortable yet to let her know, you know, what we dealt with on a daily basis just yet. Eventually, I think I'll get to that point, but I'm not quite there yet. And for me, you know, like I said, since I retired, dealing with the PTSD, I've been very grateful that the VA has, you know, put me in a group, you know, talking to a wizard. You know, I talked to a wizard at, uh, for actual, like my mental health stuff, at least for every two months. Now it started out that I was doing it like every two weeks. I was doing every two weeks. I was sitting there having an appointment and after appointment, after appointment. And from me going to school, focusing on my photography, my videos, 
and trying to focus my time on other things to get more creative has helped me to kind of cope with dealing with all those other issues that I've dealt with every single day to focus it on something else. And with that wizard that I see, she's noticed that those things have made a difference and it changes. And that's why to me, it's very, very important that, you know, that we as veterans continue to bug your medical people, whether it's the VA or whoever you have continue to bug them that if you need some kind of therapy or something to deal with mental health issues, you need to stay on top of it. And it may not think that it's an issue, you know, because for me, the things that I did I thought they were normal, you know, to me, there was normal things every single day and all those things. And, you know, you know, and it's not, it's not normal to be able to get up in the morning already pissed off and disgruntled and just wanting to be on, you know, not wanting to be around anybody, not wanting to be in a store, not wanting to be around crowds of people. And all those situations, you know, dealt from the time of all my deployments to me now getting out of the service, it makes it harder and difficult to deal with those things out here in the civilian world. And those are the kind of things that I'm talking about that a lot of the civilians or people that weren't actually there in that kind of environment with you just are not going to understand what you're going through. So it makes it hard for us to actually, you know, open up and let them know. But if you haven't had the opportunity to try to get help mental health wise, remember you have your vet centers located there in your communities. Find your local one, find your local vet center. So that way you know that it's there. They help with a lot of the mental health things. You know, all they need is your DD-214 to prove that you were an active duty service and they will get you the help, the references, whatever you need to ensure that you get the help and the treatment that you're going to need just to make sure that, you know, it doesn't get way worse because that's the main thing. We don't want it to get worse. We want it to make sure that you get better. And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of service members, a lot of service members that have just let those mental health issues, you know, they overtake them and they lose the battle with dealing with these problems. And, you know, it's sad. It's very, very sad that, you know, they're not able to reach out to get these help. And a lot of individuals, I know that they've reached out trying to get the help and everything that they need. And, you know, not for everyone. For everyone is not a great experience, you know, dealing with stuff with the VA. But also, we have to remember that we have to be persistent. If you're looking for some assistance or something to deal with some of your disabilities that you have, you have to continue to be persistent on what you want and the things that you need to get done. Because what I've noticed is with a lot of service members, you know, they apply for the health care through the VA. They request to get some kind of appointments or anything like that. And sometimes they need additional paperwork from the service member or the veteran. And the veteran never sends anything in. You know, and that's going to, of course, that's going to cause a lot of delays and being able to be seen and stuff like that. So we got to remember if they send us some paperwork that they're requesting things from us, we got to get it to them right away to make sure that they receive what they need. Gunny just decided to join me here in the studio and he got a new toy for his birthday yesterday. It's like a little octopus that's got a squeaky ball inside of it. So if you guys hear the squeaky noise behind me, that's what it is. Gunny decided to come in here into the studio and he wants to be part of the podcast this week. You know, unfortunately, dogs can't talk yet, but one day, one day we're going to have a device that can let us know exactly what our furry pets are thinking and stuff like that. But see, now I got sidetracked. So, yes, yeah, so remember, 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 if you are required to send some kind of paperwork or whatever you got to do to send it to the VA, send it. Don't put it to the side. Don't just procrastinate on those things because that's going to help you get your things that you need a lot faster and to make sure that it gets done. And don't get discouraged, please. Do not get discouraged saying, oh, well, they're not going to help me. They're not They're They're just they don't they just don't care and this and that. You know, unfortunately, there's always individuals. There's always that 10 percent that 10% that we know and the way that we knew it into the military, they just don't care. They simply don't care about helping anybody or they're just disgruntled. And that's everywhere. And it's in the VA as well. And it sucks because there's a bunch of about 98% of the VA is all veterans. It's all veterans that work for the VA and, you know, and their mentality is that way. And, and that's, and it's not right, but it's never going to change if, you know, individuals don't continue to pursue and, try to get everything that they need to make sure that they get what they are, they have deserved and what they've earned because of their time in the service. 
So remember, get everything to them. Make sure that they have all the paperwork they, they need from you and be persistent. Be persistent with all those things. Ultimately, nobody's going to take care of you but you. You're responsible for taking care of yourself and nobody's going to continue to remind you to do appointments, to get checkups, to get seen besides yourself now that you're out of service. And that's just the way that it's going to be. It's going to be because, you know, we're no longer in the military. We're no longer in the military and nobody's going to tell us to go to dental. Nobody's going to tell us that we got to go get vaccines to go and get seen for the doctor for issues that we had. And uh, with the VA, especially, once you get a rating and, you know, you have the health care that's available to you through the VA. You need to go see the VA at least once a year. At least once a year to go and get your checkups, your physical, whatever it is that you need to get to ensure that the rating is going to continue to stay the way that it is. Because you never know, it could it could increase later on because, you know, your things are, your issues you have since you've been on active duty and now that you're out, they're just going to get worse. They're going to get worse. Your injuries are going to get worse, you know, and, you know, there's nothing that we can do about that. They're going to get worse the older that we get. And the VA needs to have that documented to make sure that they see that you still have those issues and whatever rating they gave you from the get-go when you got out is going to continue to be there or it could possibly get increased. Now, if you're 100% permanent total, you know, that changes things because, you know, it's permanent total. It's never going to change. However, you know, even for me, I still continue to go to the VA to get seen for my physical to make sure that I'm good and they see that I'm still constantly receiving care. Do I have my own private doctors? Yes, of course. I have my own private doctors and things like that. But I still get seen through the VA for the wizard, for some physical therapy, for my back issues that I'm having. They're sending me to pain management, but they continue to see that it's still an ongoing issue because it is. It's not going to get better. But I also get seen for a lot of those same issues with my private doctors. And I just ensure that the VA gets copies of all those medical records from my private doctor so they have them as well. So that way they talk to each other in a way. Now, unfortunately, with TRICARE and the VA, they really don't communicate very well with each other. And hopefully that gets better because they need to. They need to work together as a Department of Defense and a VA department, both parts of the government, to make sure that veterans that are retired and so forth are taken care of, to make sure that they continue to receive everything that they need. So remember, take care of yourself. Ensure that you submit any paperwork that you need. Enjoy your time with your family. And don't forget that today is Thursday and it's time to field day and get your nasty rooms clean. Get ready for inspection so you guys can get a good early Liberty call tomorrow. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel Signs Photography. Miguel Signs is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings, family portraits, and special events. With years of experience and a creative eye, Miguel Signs will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come. Whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album, a unique family portrait, or a professional headshot for your business, Miguel Signs Photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life. From the initial consultation to the final product, Miguel Signs will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Signs Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel Signs Photography. Visit Miguel Signs Photography online at miguelsignsphotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. As we progress in the reading of our book, in Iraq in 2003 with the 1st Marine Division, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy, last week we started on Chapter 3 and we talked about how the Iraqis welcomed the new year and in the expectations of the 1st Marine Division and what they were planning that year in preparation of the division moving in from Kuwait and actually heading into Iraq. This week we're going to take a look at the developments in the fire support planning. Now, to me, this is near and dear to my heart because I was part of the 11th Marine Regiment, the artillery regiment that was down there to provide all the support and everything that we needed to do in order to allow our troops on the ground to be successful and to ensure that they accomplished the mission that they needed to do. And, you know, as we know, 
for those of you that followed that time frame during 2003, and some of you listening might have not even been born <laughs> during that time, and possibly, you know, you were very, very young when everything occurred in September 11th. You know, everybody has their own way of remembering exactly what happened that day, where you were, what you were doing when all those things occurred and really woke up our nation in understanding that, you know, we are vulnerable. We're not invincible, that anybody can come into this country and do things to hurt our citizens, our nation, and, you know, get rid of everything that we are holding so near and dear to our hearts. And by serving in the services, and even though I'm not a full-fledged United States citizen, I wasn't born in this country. I'm an immigrant that actually came here that became a naturalized citizen. But yet, I chose to enlist in the armed forces and fight for the freedoms of this country that I wasn't even born on, but I adopted its traditions, everything that allowed me to become an, a United States citizen. So let's go ahead and get into and talking about the actual fire support planning that the division had planned to put into place to allow the division to actually be successful once they actually moved from Kuwait and actually headed into Iraq. The division became familiar with the kill box system, a geographical reference established by the Combined Forces Air Combat Commander or the CFACC. The kill box interdiction KI referenced grid systems that defined the drawing parallel lines along the 00 minute and 30 minute lines of latitude and longitude, dividing the AO or the area of operation into a patchwork of squares approximately 55 kilometers on a side. Each kill box was further subdivided into nine smaller sections, approximately 18 kilometers on a side, referred to as a keypad, from the practice of designating them according to the arrangement of the numbers on a telephone keypad. A number of fire support planners advanced the idea that kill boxes made the battalion coordination line, or the BCL, obsolete on the modern non-linear battlefield. These officers argued that the BCL was not necessarily in this situation, since the MEF could open and close kill boxes wherever it chose to focus or deny the fires of the mall, including close air support or CAS. This concept was generally referred to as the click cast conops, taking its name from CETCOM's concept of operations for the employment of KI and CAS. To facilitate the permissive engagement of high payoff targets with air short and BCO, the division's planners turned to kill boxes to meet this requirement. With kill boxes as a centerpiece of fire support and coordination plan, the division became very comfortable with them. For example, many facts who did not receive special operations instructors or spins of the air tasking order, the, the ATO, used kill box corners as geographic references for the control of the CAS, instead of more conventional measures like holding areas and contact control of CAS. Instead of more conventional systems eventually rose to a point that regimental air officers contacted the DACS directly to open up kill boxes in their zones short of the BCO, posing a new battle space management challenge to the division's FSCC, fires planners came up with the prioritized target list, eventually numbering about 70 targets, which was planned to be pasted into the final hours of the last pre-hostility operation Southern Watch or ATO. This would allow for a planned sequence of shaping fires, even if a short decision timeline did not allow the wholesome ATO rewriting. Mall planners later indicated that they would need about eight hours to service these targets. In the case of a simultaneous A-Day and G-Day, the MEF would be prepared to make up for the deficit of a shaping by using CAS sorties to prep battlefield. Accordingly, the mall planned to spike to generate a high volume of CAS sorties during the first ATO of operations. As with maneuver timing was critical because the need to achieve tactical surprise and simultaneously of action across the CFLCC 
objectives east of the 1st Marine Division zone. The entire targeting process was significantly hampered by thousands of sites placed in the Restricted Target List, or the RTL, at the theater level, based on general characterizations zone. This meant that many Iraqi combat units and tactical objectives were protected by a somewhat arbitrary restriction on shaping fires. Some of the most important division shaping objectives had been placed on the RTL by the nationwide generalization approach with no coordination with tactical units or apparent thought to specified objectives. The targeting guidance working group and the detailed planning that followed allowed the early clearance of division shaping targets on the RTL and prepared the division well to adapt swiftly to a rapidly changing situation as the final hours counted down to G-Day. So as you can see, they're working all the kinks and everything that they need to do in order to make sure that they have all these targets identified and they were going to have pre-planned targets already put into place. Now, with a lot of these pre-planned targets, the things that they're talking about, you know, a lot of the targets were going to be taken out by air. However, the way that the climate and the way that the air is down there in Iraq, there's nothing but sand. So we had tons and tons of sandstorms that occurred all the time when we were over there. So what that did, that actually grounded the aircraft to the ground because they can't fly in what they call red air. So, and what that means is that the air, the visibility is not there. They cannot fly because it could damage the aircraft. Ultimately, the aircraft could be taken out of the sky just because of the sand and the wind and all that stuff and everything. But the king of battle artillery does not rest. We don't need to see in order to shoot our cannons. All we need is to have the eyes on the ground of our forward observers to be able to plot the targets on the ground and let us know where we need to impact once we shoot our cannons. And as for these already pre-planned targets, we already had the coordinates, the actual deflection and the azimuth that we need to shoot these targets at. So we had them pre-planned already. And we were capable of engaging and actually reaching these targets from where we were gonna be positioned at throughout the whole entire area of operations. So that made it easy for us. That made it easy to ensure that we continue to support the infantry, which was on the ground in front of us, to ensure that they got that support. And it made it more interesting because with the Iraqis sitting down and stuff and everything, when they were having all these sandstorms, you know, we were still able to engage them. So they weren't really prepared for that. They figured that, hey, the Americans aren't used to the kind of weather that we have here. We're going to continue to move and do our thing. And they're not going to be able to do anything. Well, ha, surprise, surprise, because we, as artillerymen in the initiative of the 1st Marine Division, were able to continue our plan in any kind of environment. Now, next week, we're going to take a look at the operation planning. How are they going to update that, you know, with the Highway 1 corridor? We talked about Highway 1 earlier, about three, maybe four weeks ago, we talked about Highway 1 and how the division was going to use that highway. And oh God, let me tell you guys, Highway 1 was a freaking major, major traffic jam. Now, those of you that have traveled in traffic in California, oh gosh, I hate going to California because the traffic is bumper to bumper. Just imagine that. Imagine bumper to bumper traffic in a combat zone, in a combat environment as the division is moving forward. I'll leave you with that picture in your head, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week hero, hero highlight. highlight in this week's hero highlight we take a look at another well-decorated united states marine major general Merritt austin edson this is his medal of honor citation major general Merritt austin edson known as red mike was born in rutland vermont on 25 april 1897 and reared in chester vermont he attended the university of vermont for two years Military service interrupted, however, on 27 June of 1916. Private Edson of the 1st Vermont National Guard Regiment was sent to Eagle Pass, Texas for duty in the Mexican border. He returned to the university in September of 1916, but joined the Marine Corps Reserve on 26 June the following year. Thus began a career which was to be characterized by its diversity and distinguished even by the high standards of the Marine Corps. He was commissioned a second lieutenant in the regular Marine Corps on 9 October 1917. In September of the next year, he sailed for France with the 11th Marines. This regiment saw no combat, but during the last six months of his European tour, 
Second Lieutenant Etten commanded Company D, 15th Separate Marine Battalion, which had been organized for the express purpose of assisting in the holding of a placit in Schwarzwald-Holstein, Germany, owing to the failure of the United States to ratify the Treaty of Versailles. This mission, however, was never carried out. Following the end of World War I, he began a diversified series of assignments that were to qualify him for the high commands he was to hold in his later years. Promoted to first lieutenant on 4 June 1920, he spent the two years at Marine Barracks, Quantico, Virginia, as the adjutant registrar in the Fledgen Marine Corps Institute. His efforts greatly contributed to the organization and establishment of the University of Marines. This was followed by a short tour in Louisiana guarding the mail. His interest in military aviation then prompted him to apply for flight training in Pensacola, Florida. He earned his gold wings in 1922. Soon after, he was ordered to the Marine Air Station at Guam. Here, he had his introduction to the semi-tropical islands of the Marianas, with which his name was later to become so closely linked. Upon his return to the United States in 1925, First Lieutenant Edson first looked an extensive course in advanced aviation tactics at Kelly Field, Texas, and then attended the company's officer's course at Quantico, Virginia. He graduated with the highest grades ever attained by any student up to that time. For physical reasons, however, First Lieutenant Essen had to give up his flying status in 1927 and revert to ground. He was then assigned to duty as ordnance officer at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Late in the same year, he was ordered to sea duty as commanding officer of the Marine Detachment on the USS Denver and was promoted to captain on 21 December 1927. During her service in Central American waters, Captain Edson's detachment was ashore in Nicaragua during the period of February 1928 to 1929 in command of 160 picked and specially trained Marines. He fought 12 separate engagements with the Sandino-led bandits and denied them the use of the Poteca and Cocoa River valleys. Here, he received his first Navy Cross for actions in which his exhibited in coolness intrepidity and dash so inspired his men that the superior forces of bandits were driven from the prepared positions and severe losses inflicted upon them. From a grateful Nicaraguan government, Captain Etten was also awarded the Nicaraguan Medal of Merit with Silver Star. In September 1929, Captain Etten returned to the United States and was assigned as tactics instructor to the fledging Marine lieutenants at the basic school in Philadelphia. Upon detachment from the duty, he became Ordnance and War Plans Officer at the Philadelphia Depot of Supplies for the next four years. This Ordnance duty was not new to Captain Etzen, who was closely associated with the development of small arms marksmanship within the Marine Corps. In 1921, he had been a firing member of the winning Marine Corps team at the national matches at Camp Perry, Ohio. In 1927, 1930, and 1931, he served with the rifle and pistol teams as assistance coach. During the regional matches of 1932 and 1933, he acted as team coach and captain, respectively. Upon the reception of the national matches in 1935, he was captain of the Marine Corps National Rifle and Pistol Teams of 1935 and 1936, winning the national trophies in both years. After short tours at Paris Island and Marine Corps headquarters in Washington, D.C., he was enrolled in the senior officer's course at the Marine Corps schools in Quantico, Virginia in 1936. He was promoted to major on 9 February 1936, foreign duty as operations officer with the 4th Marines in Shanghai, China from 1937 to 1939, enabled Major Ezen to observe closely Japanese military operations. This knowledge thus gained stood him in good stead during the Pacific War. His second tour of duty at Marine Corps headquarters began in May of 1939 when, as inspector of target practice, he was in a position to stress the importance of every Marine being highly skilled with his own individual arm. He was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel on 1 April of 1940. In June of 1941, he was again transferred to Quantico to command 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, which was redesignated as the 1st Separate Battalion in January of 1942. The training exercises which he conducted in the succeeding months with Navy High Speed Transport, APDs, 
led to the organization of the 1st Marine Raider Battalion in early of 1942. This unit was a prototype of every Marine Raider Battalion formed throughout the war. He was promoted to Colonel on 21 May of 1942. Colonel Edson's introduction to the Pacific Theater of Operations began with the overseas training of his Raider Command in American Samoa. On 7 August 1942, the free world was thrilled by the news that his Raiders, together with the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines, had landed on Tulagi, British Solomon Islands. Two days of severe fighting secured this strategic island. This action was followed by raids on Savo Islands and the Tashamboko on Guadalcanal. Colonel Edson was awarded a gold star in lieu of 2nd Navy Cross for his successful conduct of the Tulagi operation. His crowning glory and the battle for which he will be long remembered by Marines and grateful Americans people was the defense of Lunga Ridge on Guadalcanal on the night of 13 and 14 September of 1942. His Raider Battalion, with two companies of 1st Parachute Battalions attached, had been sent to a ridge line a short distance south of Henderson Field. Here, they were supposed to get a short rest, when the Japanese forces unexpectedly and viciously attacked the position on the first evening. They penetrated the left center of Colonel Edson's line of resistance, thus forcing a withdrawal to a reserve position. Here, approximately 800 Marines withstood the repeated assault of more than 2,500 Japanese on the Bloody Ridge, as it became to be known to the world. To the men of the 1st Raider Battalion, however, who sustained 256 casualties, it became Edson's Ridge. In high honor of the officer who was all over the place encouraging, cajoling, and correcting as he continually exposed himself to enemy fire. His nickname? Red Mike. Originating from his red beard worn in Nicaragua days. Was also his code name during this battle. From then on, Colonel Edson was known only as Red Mike. It was for this action that he received the Medal of Honor. A brother officer said to him shortly thereafter that officers and men would willingly follow him anywhere. The only person was to keep up with him. A combat correspondent testified that he is not a fierce Marine. In fact, he appears almost shy. Yet Colonel Edson is probably among the five finest combat commanders in all United States Armed Forces. It was also said that he was not readily given to show any emotion. Nevertheless, when his personal runner of several months service was killed at the second battle of Malinkai River on Guadalcanal, witnesses said he cried like a baby and later stated that the man could never be replaced. In August of 1943, he was named Chief of Staff of the 2nd Marine Division, which was then preparing for Tarawa. He prepared an estimate of the situation for his operation which proved to be surprisingly accurate and has since become a class in Marine Corps military literature. For his actions, he received the Legion of Merit and was promoted to Brigadier General on 1 December 1943. Later, he was appointed Assistant Division Commander of the 2nd Marine Division and participated in the capacity in the capture of Saipan and Tanan. The Silver Star was awarded him for these operations. Brigadier General Edson became Chief of Staff Fleet Marine Force Pacific in October of 1944 and for his service during the ensuing years was awarded a Gold Star in lieu of 2nd Legion of Merit. Duty as Commanding General Service Command Fleet Marine Force Pacific rounded out 44 months of continuous service in a war zone. When a young officer once asked him when he might expect to be rotated back to the United States, Brigadier General Edson replied, when the war is over when the job is done. In December of 1945, he was assigned to the Office of Chiefs of Naval Operations and in February 1947 to Marine Corps Headquarters. Retirement from active duty came at the age of 50 years and after more than 30 years in military service of his country. He was promoted to Major General at the time of his retirement on 1 August of 1947. Following retirement, Major Edson's civilian service was equally distinguished. He became a first commissioner of the Vermont State Police, organizing the force partially from an older organization of motor vehicle officers. He set up an efficient organization on a semi-military basis, a system which has since adopted by other states. Returning to Washington, D.C. in July of 1951, Major Edson became executive director of the National Rifle Association. 
His major efforts in the post were directed in stimulating the interest of Americans in rifle marksmanship. Concurrently, he campaigned vigorously for a Marine Corps adequate both in size and strength for its many commitments. Major General Edson died on 14 August of 1955 in Washington, D.C. At the time of his death, in addition to his duties as a rifle association, he was a Navy representative on the Defense Advisory Committee on Prisoner of War Problems. This group formulated recommended standards of conduct for American prisoners of war. These were later adopted and promulgated as the code of conduct for all American servicemen. To those who knew him personally, Major General Edson would be best remembered for his keen professionalism, his magnificent personal leadership in battle, and his sympathetic understanding of the soul of a Marine. In addition to the Medal of Honor, two Navy Crosses, a Silver Star, and two Legion of Merits, Major General Edson's numerous decorations included the Presidential Unit Citation with two Bronze Stars, the Mexican Service Medal, World War I Victory Medal with Maltese Cross, Second Nicaraguan Campaign Medal, China Service Medal with Bronze Star, American Defense Service Medal with Bronze Star, American Campaign Medal, Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with six Bronze Stars, the World War II Victory Medal, the Distinguished Service Order, British Empire, and the Nicaraguan Medal of Merit. The, the Quarterdeck. You're listening to The Quarterdeck with Miguel the Gunny Signs, and this week we covered so much talking about the 1st Marine Division. In our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, no greater friend, no worse enemy. And take a look at what they're doing. They are refining, planning, ensuring that the fire support plan is going to be completely in place to ensure the success of the division because it's important. They want to make sure that everything is ready to go. In our hero highlights, we talked about Major General Merritt Austin Edson. My God, what else can I say about this Marine? The things that he did, not only through combat, World War One, all those things in World War Two that he was so successful in that he, after he completed his 30 years of active duty service, he continued to do things out of the military, police, working with the Navy command, all those things, outstanding things that he did himself to make sure that way after he is no longer here, that the things that he was in, that he was proud of, that he wanted to ensure there were left for the Marine Corps were there. And by God, did he do it? He did a great job of it. Next week, we're going to look at Captain Henry Talmadge Elrod and his citation and what he did to actually earn himself that Congressional Medal of Honor. And lastly, remember to always stay proactive. Stay proactive in everything that you do in life, not only for yourself, but also for your family. But for your well-being, your health, your mental health, everything. Stay on top of all those things to make sure that you take care of yourself now that you're no longer in the military, that you're a veteran, that you're out here in the real world taking care of yourself. So until next week, this is Miguel the Gunny Signs sounding Liberty Call. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. Get Constitution, United States, United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.